Tactics and Practice Podcast. Dobar dan everyone and welcome to Tactics and Practice Podcast, the audio extension of the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts discursive program of the same name, focusing on investigative art, society and new technologies. Back in 2021, for the 10th edition of Tactics and Practice, writer and tech journalist Marta Peirano conceived and led a series of conversations with a range of world-class thinkers entitled Reprogramming Strategies for Self-Renewal. My name is Yanis Fakinyansha, I'm the Artistic Director of Axioma, and I'm ready to share with you the recordings of that event, one episode at a time, once a week. The eight episodes feature Marta in conversation with Kim Sterry Robinson, Benjamin Breton, Holly Jim Buck, Anab Jain, Kate Crawford, Joanna Moll, Astra Taylor and Eyal Baseman. This is episode number two, entitled Infrastructure and Alternative Earth, in which Marta talks with American philosopher of technology, Benjamin Breton. The second part of the recording is spiced up by questions from translator and editor Marco Bauer, architect and researcher Milos Kosets, artist and designer Micha Turšić, and our dear online audience. If you missed the previous episode, you can easily find it wherever you are listening to this one. So, without further ado, here we go. Marta Perano talking to Benjamin Breton. Welcome everyone to Axioma and the second installment of the reprogramming series, this extended festival of conversations about basically how to self-renew a planet on fire. The topic of today's episode is infrastructures and we will talk not only, but probably mostly about this 52-year-old infrastructure that once promised to bring all humans under the values of democracy, but has become the host of this massive logistical enterprise that registers every interaction, matches buyers and sellers, and while it does not produce much value, it does calculate every price. My guest today has described it as a planetary scale computation infrastructure in a book called The Stack on Software and Sovereignty, which I highly recommend among other things because it has changed the way I see the world. So I am especially delighted to introduce this author as one of the most extraordinary thinkers of the 21st century. And welcome to reprogramming Professor Benjamin Breton. Thank you very much for inviting me and thank you for the kind introduction. Well, as you know, I want to talk to you about how this planetary scale computation infrastructure can be used for climate mitigation, for restoration and management. But before, and first of all, for those who haven't read the stack, can you explain what it is? Sure. The stack is a model of what we might call planetary scale computation. So first of all, instead of thinking of computation as a kind of object, that there are certain things in the world that are computers, certain things that are not computers, we're, we're instead looking at the history and present of computation as an infrastructure, an infrastructure that operates at planetary scale, and indeed an infrastructure that has produced planetary scale effects, and in certain respects has even produced what we recognize today as planetarity in, in, the, in the first place. Now, the book looks at this 
specifically in terms of the history of political geography, though there's other ways of entering into that question. Uh, and its argument basically is twofold. One is that the, the emergence of planetary scale computation has both distorted and deformed traditional Westphalian models of political geography and produced new territories in its own image that in essence re redraws the map in certain respects and in other respects produces the territory over which and through which new kinds of maps might be imagined. The second argument is that instead of seeing planetary scale computation as a single un undifferentiated machine, it is in fact more complex than that. It is more modular. It is more uh, distributed in certain respects. It can be understood in that regard as analogous to the network architecture stacks, OSI or TCP IP, as operating at multiple levels, multiple layers. And so in the book, I talk about this in relationship to that is, instead of thinking about it as planetary scale computation is one thing, we can see all the different genres of this, from smart grids to cloud computing to Internet of Things, or artificial intelligence, and so forth. Instead of seeing these as a bunch of different species of computing all kind of spinning out independently, they actually form a, a something more coherent than that, a something more interoperable however accidental that process might, might have been. And so the book deals with this at six layers, what are called earth layer, cloud layer, city layer, address layer, interface layer, and user layer that comprise this accidental megastructure, which I call the stack. I like the idea of the stack being accidental considering how complex it is. I like to mm -hmm. think about it after reading the book as as, as layers of skin, you know, that contain like different uh -huh. colonies of, of maybe, you know, including bacteria and fungus that somehow leave off each other and behave in ways that are not deliberately uh, coordinated, but works at the end, yeah. it works this way. Now, the question is, having established that layer that can work as, as a dermis or even as a part of the nervous system of this plant, planetary skin, and its events. The paradox is how in a time with this infrastructure and the era of big data defined by the you know, extraction and process of extreme amounts of data, how is it that we were not able to prepare for a pandemic? Or even how is it that Texas wasn't capable of preparing <laughs> their system or their energetic grid for Yes. With no storm, or even Madrid, but with less dramatic right. circumstances, I guess. So, what's what's the problem yeah. with that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Ones that would then, in that respect, tie together the stack with the, the upcoming book, "The Revenge of the Real," on the project. But let me kind of go through it quickly, step by step, and in, in, through your excellent question. You know, another way in which we might think about planetary scale computation in that sort of that epidermal form, is to understand it this way. Like if, if you were to imagine the blue marble, the famous image of the Earth from outer space, and instead of seeing it as a static image, you were to imagine it as a kind of very long movie that goes, you know, four and a half billion years in which you could see the entire evolution of the planet. And if we were to watch this on a kind of extreme fast forward, you know, we'd see volcanoes and comets and continents moving together and various things. And at, at the very last few minutes of this of this movie, we would see 
something interesting happened and in that there would be these hominids that would appear along on the surface of the earth that were capable of tremendous feats of abstraction, aesthetic reason, technical reason, allegorical reason, instrumental reason. And then in the very last few seconds of this, we would see something that is really extraordinary that we really wouldn't have seen before in the history up to this point. And that is the appearance of, we would see the planet in essence wrap itself in wires. We would see transoceanic cables linking things together. We would see satellites being launched, producing a kind of inorganic fuzzy cloud around the planet. We would see the appearance, in other words, of planetary scale computation not just as a human technology, but in essence, as, as a kind of cognitive layer that has appeared on, in, and around Earth itself. I mean, if the stack was a book that was trying to sort of draw the history of that, of that appearance, or the history of the moment by which we sort of realize that this has appeared, the real question to be asked, which I think goes to the heart of your question, is really, what is it for? What, what is planetary scale computation for? What, what, is the, what is the purpose to which this, this capacity for sensing and modeling and simulation that we produced, to, to, what, to what should it be oriented and to what purposes it should it be served? And we've oriented it to lots of different things, some of which are quite obnoxious, like the surveillance of individual internet users trying to motivate them in, into clicking on, on, ver on various kinds of things and monetizing this. To be sure, I think one of the most the most sort of damaging uses of this, in at least in its early year, has been not just not just the fact that it's in essence surveilling individuals, but that we've used it as a way of modeling individual persons in the first place, as if individual humans themselves were the most interesting and important thing that the planet could know about itself. And so, in, in, and I'll, I'll say more about the problems with that later because I think understanding it in this way is also, in a way, the basis of my critique of some of the more conventional critiques of, of what Shoshana Zuboff's called surveillance capitalism. Uh, I think her approach to this leaves is, is, is wanting in certain regards. But more importantly, we can also look at things like climate science. One of the other things that this apparatus has done is told us that the earth is warming. That is, so the, going to your first question of what it is that planetary scale computation might contribute to the mitigation or our anthropogenic response to anthropogenic climate change, the first thing we need to understand is that the very idea of climate change, the very concept of climate change in quotes as, as a concept is an epistemological accomplishment of planetary scale computation. Without the ability to sense and model and, and, and simulate billions and billions of data points from ice cores and surface temperatures and atmospheric temperatures and to model this into the future and into the past, that the simple concept of the man curve or the Keeling curve, the hockey stick, wouldn't have been approachable. There's no amount of direct phenomenological perception of nature that would have allowed us to come to this level of a technical abstraction. This, to me, is points in the direction of the kinds of things that planetary scale computation is for and should be used for. These are the sort of the positive directions of this. Now, the second part of your question of, of like, given the capacity that we have of, you know, the technical capacity for sensing and modeling and, uh, and structuring huge amounts of information in this way, why is it that we are, in fact, so incompetent at using this apparatus for the purposes of reasonable self-organization and self-governance. And, and this is exactly the, 
the question that needs to be asked. I think part of it is that part of it has to do with the fact that since the beginning of the neoliberal era in the 1970s and 1980s, there has been in the West, in the West, a kind of dismantling of the premise of governance in the first place, whether that's through on the right, the idea that market forces, self-emergent market forces can in fact organize a society without, without any kind of deliberate planning. On the left, it was a kind of deep congenital uh, suspicion of all forms of, of authority and, and the state understood as, as coterminous with, with state violence. And anyway, obviously it's a, it's a complicated story, but in the West, there has been a sort of a loss, a loss in the capacity to actually deliberately self-organize it and self-govern ourselves. And the pandemic, as I see it, was a huge wake-up call or should have been a huge wake-up call that the most technologically advanced societies in the world were in many cases not, it wasn't that we were technologically unable to deal with the situation, we were politically and culturally unable to deal with the situation because the kinds of governing responses that would have been necessary, the kinds of positive biopolitical responses that would have been necessary were things that we uh, either have, that we haven't learned how to do with these tools. And this has been, a, and this is something that we need to, we need to learn how to do. Now, the story in, in, in Asia is quite different. And I think to a certain extent, looking at, as we begin to sort of take stock of the, of, of beginning to look towards a post-pandemic era and take stock of what happened, the differences in the success of the response in the United States or the UK or Italy versus Taiwan or Singapore uh, or, or Korea are quite stark. And I think there will be a, um, a certainly a reckoning in that in, in, in that regard, or should be at least. Well, I really like this connection that I that when I'm listening to you that I make thinking again of, of this idea of the the superstructure as an epidermis that the earth and this kind of PBS documentary that you <laughs> mentioned at the beginning. Um, <laughs> yeah, grown. the biggest nature video ever. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But it, it, it kind of links with one of my favorite texts, which is Samuel Butler Darwin Among the Machines. He uh, suggests that we humans are just the sexual organs of the machines. And so the, the way you describe this massive video makes me think that maybe not the organs, but the bacteria on the skin that allows for the, for the earth to grow sensors that are sophisticated and yeah. no i also really like that your approach to how this infrastructure is being misused in terms of mm. surveillance is not so much that surveillance is is a is a crime against our particular individual personal or civil rights as much as it is a waste of time and resources and this uh, goes back to this front that has been open in the last few years of recovering the data that has been extracted with this particular purpose of surveillance. And one of the things that I really like about your particular approach is that you think this data is useless for the same reason why we couldn't prevent or prepare for the pandemic. It's not a technical problem. <laughs> it's more of a goals <laughs> problem, no? Like this machine... Yeah has the ability to provide for a source of immense organizing power <laughs> for the whole planet, and yet is being used for serving the political ambitions of 
little countries all around the world. So again, hmm. it's not a technical problem. So I wonder, how do you imagine that this, that this collection of sensors and eyes that we have placed all over the earth, but also on top of it and in the oceans can be with its protocols and everything can be reprogrammed, which is the name of the series, in order to serve that purpose, to become like the skin that we need to sense what's going on on Earth and cure and serve as a mitigation and, and restoration and reparation mm -hmm. process. Yeah. So, th th yeah, um, I, I think that the first part of your comment and the second part are probably closely aligned. Like um, the, the, old, the adage of, of humans as the sexual organs of the machines, in a way, is, is part of the answer to this, the second part in, in, another, in another way as well. Um, you mentioned the bacteria. In, in the terraforming book, at the beginning, I talk about the black hole image that a few years ago appeared, the image of the black hole. And I compare this with the blue marble, and I suggest that in many respects, the black hole image is much more significant, philosophically significant, scientifically significant than the blue marble image, particularly in terms of the way it positions and locates humans in this, that kind of planetary dynamic of the inter and intra-emergence of biological and non-biological forms. And specifically, you know, the, the telescope through which this image was produced is the Event Horizon Telescope. It was distributed across the entire surface of one side of the planet um, in different sort of nodes and then coordinated as sort of little, you know, you could think of it as rods and cones, like in an eye or something of, of different sensors, right, to produce, produce this image. And so in this regard, you have this the appearance of something like a, a, a sensory organ a very rudimentary sensory organ, perhaps similar to the kind of photoreceptors that begin to appear on early uh, oceanic species several millions of years ago, but a kind of planetary, a planetary sensing organ that begins to sort of suddenly open its eye. And one of the things that's interesting to me about that, how that locates humans sort of, you know, like we are the scurrying little creatures that live inside this telescope that nevertheless, you know, because of our unique capacity for sapience, we're able to bring this about, right? And so I think part of the the longer term implications of this is is not so much to see not sort of humans as separate from these dynamic sort of processes, but but the ones in which our reason and rationality and sapience is in fact one of the things that the planet is capable of doing. One of the things that the planet is capable of are are these are these processes of of self reflection, self modulation, self organization, and 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 self creation. The question is. What does a kind of general sapience or generalization of that sapience uh, look like if it's not only localized to a particular one particular hominid species, but is increasingly also, as you su suggested, extended into extended into in many cases computational apparatuses, uh, other kinds of other kinds of infrastructure that are also producing kinds of sensing, modeling, and simulation. Um, kind uh, forms of prospection that we were otherwise uh, otherwise sort of uniquely capable of, but but it, and also but you know but ones in which we're st we're still we're still enrolled. Um, now to the question of sort of this reprogramming of this in in, in a particular way, it, it I, I think to to a greater lesser degree it it is a question of a kind of um, you know it, it's a long term remobilization of this more fundamental 
condition of our enrollment and entanglement with these processes. And what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, it should be clear in a certain sense, the way I see it, we we discovered computation more than we invented computation. And so one of the ways to sort of think about its development over the next 50 years, over the next 500 years, or even, even longer term than this, we have to think about that kind of dynamic as, as one in which the processes, whether that's mineral sourcing or energy distribution or the social and cultural functions of this infrastructure are ones that are um, that are sustainable, quote unquote, on a much longer term scale than we're used to thinking about. Now, more specifically to the, the point that you made, again, part of the problem of the ways in which we have steered and oriented planetary scale computation in the last generation is towards the sensing, modeling, and simulation, and kind of governance of individually uh, individually described persons, users, user profiles, and, and so forth, as if the modeling of 7 billion primates were the primary function of this of, of, of this apparatus. And first of all, the individuation of them, or, you know, the individuation of us, of a society into overly individuated units in this way. This is really the first problem of this. And so part of the question, the answer to your question of how do we reprogram this? Like, what does this reprogram look like? Well, one of the, the most fundamental premises of this reprogramming is going to have to be a kind of disindividuation of the gaze, of the purpose, of the uh, agenda of planetary scale computation. There needs to be a kind of Copernican turn, if you like, away from the away from the over-individuated self-mirroring that we've come to be accustomed to. Now, I suggested that there is in some ways that that argument in some ways is in concert with the conventional critique of surveillance capitalism, but in some ways it, it departs from it. And it departs from it because in many respects, the, the more conventional version of that, the kind of Shoshana Zuboff or Naomi Klein version of that critique is one in which the response to surveillance capitalism is in fact a kind of re-individuation in a response, a kind of counter-weaponization of the liberal, legal, individual subject who, who they see has been uh, manipulated or entered into improper contractual relationships with the platform, but that the responses to this should be a kind of counter-weaponization of anonymity, a counter-weaponization of privacy, of a reprivatization of one's relationship with these platforms and so forth. And to me, in many cases, the, these kinds of responses, instead of pointing us towards a logic of the disindividuation of what it is planetary scale computation is interested in, they in fact kind of concretize or even accelerate the logic of, of individuation, but do so in ways that are seen as a kind of uh, counter-defensive response. And to your point, the take back our data, the kind of more superficial version of the take back our data notion that we might read in a, a kind of uh, agitated guardian op-ed or something like that is, is, is predicate, is the same sort of idea. I mean, first of all, I should say, uh, I'm also a little bit suspicious of the term extraction in relationship to data, but at a fundamental level, data is produced 
more than it is at the extractor. That is, data doesn't exist out into the world like strawberries, and we can go pick it up, or exist underground like petroleum, and we can extract it. And once it's extracted, it's already configured. And once it's extracted and taken somewhere else, it's no longer in, the, in that place. That multiple kinds of data can be produced about the same event or person or place or thing over and over and over again without the without excluding any of the other data models. And so the the idea that somehow if we could take back the data that Facebook has produced about society or that advertising companies have produced about society, that then we would have the data that we need in order to perform the feats and acts of self-composition, self-organization, self-governance that we need to do because we would be able to use the data that they've produced about us if we can get it back from them is I think it is I understand very much the motivation for this, but ultimately I think it's misguided because it's the wrong data. The data about what about the number of people who like this cat video or like this thing or are agitated about this political post or, or whatever is not the information that that planetary society needs in order to respond, in order to compose and to build the, the, the anthropogenic response to anthropogenic climate change, for example, that we need. We need different data uh, than that. And so, the, and so to underscore your point, part of the pathology of the situation is not only <clears throat> these are the negative effects of the system that we have, uh, political polarization, fake news, whatever, but also this we are using all of this we're using this technology at the exclusion of using it for the things we really need to be using it for we're producing data all of the things that we could be producing data about <clears throat> we're not all of the kinds of data models that we actually need <clears throat> are not being produced um, because they're being used because they're being used for other things and so maybe another last point on this is that um while as hopefully is clear, I'm, I'm extremely critical of the particular kind of individual surveillance uh, model that planetary scale computation is predica predicated on at this moment. I also think that the term surveillance to a certain extent has become uh, overextended in that it's put us in a position to where all of the, the kind of positive modes of societal self-sensing all of the potentially positive modes of societal self-modeling, all the potentially positive modes of societal self-simulation are, there's a kind of reflexive response to see these as just part of another surveillance regime and that we should reject on those terms. And in fact, I think the positive project for the reformation and the re reprogramming, as you put it, is one that's going to uh, be based on other logics of sensing, modeling, and simulation than the ones that we have. But, but also ones that I think would diminish the term surveillance to mean something much more specific than it's sometimes used to describe. Well, thanks for that. And also thanks for your suggestion of a third Copernican revolution. I, I really like this idea, especially in this Lynn Margulis uh, line that you have yeah. of us not being, not being the mo not even the most interesting species in the planet. Of course, just to remind the audience, we're talking, you know, the first one being actually Copernicus uh, demonstrating that we are not the center of the universe, then Darwin demonstrating that we are not the center of the, I don't know, visible universe. The third one would be yeah. just you know, admitting our role 
among the protozoic <laughs> creatures because you know they will yeah. probably inhabit the earth. <laughs> and um, and I really like this idea because it also suggests that the problem we have is not technical and it's not even political. It's more of an emotional problem that we have with the rest of inhabitants of the planet. Like we insist in thinking and living in this planet as if we were colonizers of it and not a part hmm. of it, which is, of course, a, a concept that you and your students explore quite thoroughly in your terraforming seminar to very yeah. interesting um, uh, conclusions. And um, the thing here is you're an architect. You have explained also in the stack that in the architecture, the design itself of a system, there is a process of decision-making that is political and that is tightly um, linked to its goal. So the thing is, how do we take all this nervous system with all its eyes and ears and you know skin bits and turn it around to look at the earth like what is what are the steps that need to be taken and i'm asking this with a bit of a selfish objective myself because i've been pushing for quite a while to do something that that is pretty unpopular because it was not my idea but donald trump's idea i think a very good one which is something i'm not gonna make a t-shirt with but um <laughs> i think when he when he tried to to make TikTok company sell all its American users, sorry, um, <laughs> I was just reminded to remind our audience to please remember that you can ask questions or leave your questions in the in the chat next to the video. I'm sorry, I totally forgot. But going back to this, the thing is, when Trump tried to oblige TikTok ByteDance company to sell the TikTok business to the United States. So it could be basically controlled in the United States and, and serve to American users in the United States. The thought I had was if Europe was to do the same thing with, say, you know, Google or Facebook, which are platforms we have like unanswerable proof <laughs> that have been surveilling European citizens without permission, we could turn those infrastructures to do things that were actually useful for us, no? Hmm. Do you think there is a path? <laughs> because, of course, when we talk about the internet and even when we talk about the stack, we're talking about a way wider a range of infrastructures and protocols and, and regulations and, 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 and all sorts of other things. But uh, how do you see the steps, like the political steps towards that that sort of infrastructure is serving this purpose? Well, there's lots of places to start. I, I think part of it is, is one, to understand that the history of planetary scale computation, the presence of planetary scale computation, the kinds of things that it, it's already being, that it is being used for, that it is good at, that, it, that its contributions are not only, are not only the ones that are controlled by commercial advertising platforms. And that's why my, I sort of keep coming back to earth sciences and astronomy and, and biotechnology and other uses of this that are that I think that, that are more profound, that are really do will form the basis of the longer term project. But it is SpaceX that is planting infrastructure on space. <laughs> it is a SpaceX that is sending, you know, artifacts to Mars. I mean, 
Lots of people are. So China has currently has rovers on the moon. The rover that just landed on Mars was a NASA project. But but you're right. The question of I mean the question of of space, which I'm, I'm happy to speak to because I think it's extremely interesting, particularly in relationship to states and the relationship between states and corporations in terms of space uh, and the kind of legal structures that are emerging from this. It, it will become an a really profound and, and important uh, point of contestation. But it, it, let me lead up to that in a couple steps. You know, there's certain kinds of technologies that they're more fundamental social, that they're really the decisive social impact that they have is, is instrumental, that they allow us to do something that we couldn't have done before. There's other kinds of technologies that the real impact is not so much instrumental, that it, it's epistemological, that they actually allow us to see and understand the world in a different way. And so, you know, that microscopes and telescopes are examples of this. And I think in the long term, planetary scale computation is as well. And, you know, I think there were other Copernican turns along that line between Darwin, you know, neuroscience, I think AI will prove to be a kind of Copernican turn. But to the question of, of this, you know, I'm actually, I would say that I think the Trump administration's attempt to nationalize TikTok was, was probably misguided. I'm not really immediately automatically sympathetic to trying to respond to these kinds of planetary complexities through through some kind of nationalism or regionalism as a, a kind of automatic automatic response to how these might work. I think that there is not only because in certain respects there's kinds of um, you know there's analogies to other kinds of, of atavistic forms of political or cultural fundamentalism, nativism, so forth and so on. That, that is, I, I think the planetarity of these circumstances is a given. One of the things that planetary scale computation has done is not only produced planetary conditions, it has disclosed or revealed that the social and political and cultural uh, realities in which we're in mesh have always been planetary to a, certain, to a certain regard. And so in the long run, the project is going to also have to be planetary in scope. I don't think just a kind of you know re-enclosure re around comfortable jurisdictions is in the long run going to solve the problem. In tactical sense of ways in which, for example, you know, with GDPR and where there's there is a kind of leveraging of existing political structures to trying to reestablish the politics of data. For certain, there are can be tactical, uh, important as aspects of this. One of the the things about GDPR, I, I find, though, to be clear, I might find a bit troubling, is the idea that data is fundamentally personal. That personal data is is something that needs that needs to be understood. And in that regard, to be clear, I don't think Facebook's is fixable. I don't think it's a matter of fixing Facebook. I think Facebook, in particular, because it models society based on this over-individuated user profile, over-individuation of, of users in this individual kind of construct, that taking back this data or preserving this data is going to be, I, I'm not convinced that this is, is going to be useful in, in this kind of sense. Now, that said, what, what other kinds of sort of planetary structures might be? Well, I think part of the longer project, and we're just starting a a project next week at the Stroke Institute as part of the terraforming program on planetary governance, on the future of planetary governance, which may be, which may be of interest to your listeners. I'll, I'll post the links for this in a, in a moment. I, it includes a, it includes a new essay that I, I've written called "Quote Unquote New World Order for Planetary Governance," and includes an open call for for participants around this kind of issue. So, 
I strongly agree that this is a super important kind of leverage point, but it's also one that's that I will try to hold to needs to be planetary in scope, not based on a kind of nationalism. I'm also interested, you know, one of the things that that you know from the 2016 elections that that and with Brexit that people became quite alarmed about was the role of foreign consultants, foreign data, foreign platforms, foreign uh, you know external players in the construction of what were what had previously been or would understand to be sort of sovereign national political discussions. And and while you know Steve Bannon and his troops are not at all likable to me, the idea of something like a, you know a kind of planetary politics, a politics in which the there are common platforms that there's common slates of candidates, that there are common kinds of, of projects and projections that can be mobilized and organized across states, across jurisdictions, across the world's democracies as, as they exist in a way that is transnational, um, in the same way in which right-wing populists in 2016 tried to mobilize a number of different kinds of elections around, they had this, it's very kind of ironic, there's a transnational political movement that's all focused on a kind of recidivist nationalism as their as their response. Whereas maybe on the left, you have you have a number of nationalist movements, all of which imagine themselves to have a kind of transnational implications or transnational vision. And, and I wonder whether or not this should be rethought. But you know, one of the other fundamental, I think, you know, sort of strain is one of the fundamental things that I think we'll also look back at around the pandemic was this very peculiar sociological fact of once the pandemic hit, everyone, the, an otherwise mobile global population was frozen and everyone sent back to their country of passport, a kind of musical chairs, and then the music stops and the, the Spanish were sent back to Spain and the Brazilians sent back to Brazil and the Japanese sent back to Japan. As if the condition of population intermingling across borders was itself a fundamentally dangerous phenomenon, as opposed to inside of borders, but also the idea that the way in which a particular person might be given access to the healthcare infrastructure that they would need, testing, masks, vaccines, hospitalization, was only available to them in the place of their country of passport, even though all of those things might be, or certainly should be available to them, whatever there is that might go. And so going forward, you know, thinking you know, forward in a few years, the idea that you would have access to the fundamental services that states provide, that public services provide, that in many cases private services provide, regardless of your regardless of your location, should I think be a kind of an aspiration for what for the kind of positive biopolitics that we are that we're imagining. And so, you know, I'll just sort of say, you know, my initial kind of starting point for a lot of these discussions is one that holds that we need to rethink borders quite clearly, that the borders of what constitutes Europe or Eurasia or Asia or the United States or any of, the, of these kinds of things need to be fundamentally rethought. And it may not entirely be about the elimination of borders, then it is about making borders to a certain extent less relevant because the things that people would cross borders to have access to, they already have access to wherever they are. Uh, and so that can, and so the condition of of, of intermingling and of, of flows and of populations uh, connecting with one another, I, I think this is a fundamental logic of what what human populations um, for the 
the the viable planetarity to come might look like. And so I hope yeah, I hope this is a little bit of an answer to your question about TikTok. I kind of went a little bit further from that, but that's my that's my my statement on that. I should just recommend for your for the users who like TikTok, you know, TikTok is sometimes at least in the United States, I remember when there was all the controversy about that, there was a number of people doing these like Chinese protest videos on TikTok as if they were speaking back to the Chinese government and were speaking the truth to the Chinese audience who otherwise couldn't have been sort of seen as without realizing that TikTok doesn't really exist in China. TikTok is only is is Douyin is the Chinese app and so in China this is the one you use and so they were kind of speaking to themselves but imagining uh, uh, imagining all of this. But um anyway there's an, another point there's a whole another conversation to be had about there are things that the Chinese regime is doing that are reprehensible and there is I think what has become a kind of dangerously orientalist kind of nativist fear of the Chinese internet in general that that have gotten conflated with one another in ways that are that the ways that are not not productive I, I, I think in, in weird ways I think one of the things we, we see is that fear of technology which is something that is sort of has been kind of endemic to Western culture for for at least a couple hundred years fear of technology has now become fear of of China that fear that, that china has become a kind of face of the fear of technology and so where earlier tropes of a kind of faceless emotionless yellow horde that's going to come and take everything has now been replaced by images of a kind of uh, emotionless robotic sort of logistical people that is quite unlike the reality on the ground as i see it and and so part of all of this is the role of china in the terraforming project, the role of China in the composition of a viable planetarity, that, that this cannot be a conversation that the United States and Western Europe has amongst itself, is if those populations are going to be the agents of, of the agents of change and the agents of history, it's unlikely. And so the question around how to conceptualize a geopolitical planetarity, a cultural planetarity, technological planetarity, in which China in, partic China in particular, but Asia more generally, plays the leading role is certainly something that's central to my thinking. Well, absolutely. Oh, this turned very political. I was I was hoping to avoid it, but I mean, I, I would like to clear that. that I'm sorry. Did I say something I should, did I go in a direction I shouldn't have gone? No, absolutely not. I really like the direction okay. it took eventually. <laughs> but the thing is, the, the, the proposal had more to do with the decentralization of a network that involves like, hundreds of millions of people and the idea that a planetary scale computation infrastructure would be maybe more useful if there was more access, more not only to its data or to its output, but also to its management, no? to, to redistribute the mm. access to this infrastructure is being important but but i want to ask you a question before uh, with which let me respond let me respond to that in 10 seconds so that it's a little bit clear i think the the sort of the ideal form of the geopolitical and and distribution of the infrastructure and control and composition of planetary scale computation would be one that is likely more decentralized than the version that we have now in many respects but it would also be one that is also capable of planning, capable of more deliberate direction, that, it, that instead of it being a entirely emergent kind of process, it's one that um, actually has a kind of 
a, a, a sort of more self self conscious direction. That is, I think, different than to say that therefore decentralization is both the means and the ends. Like I think there are forms of decentralization that have also are part of why we are in a position where the capacity for self governance is so uh, lame at this at this moment because of a kind of deep suspicion on both the left and the right of forms of verticality in general. So anyway, that's my parenthesis on that. Well, before, and I'm happy you, you ended on that because my last question, and you're going to have like literally four minutes to answer it before we have to give, give the floor to our guests. So when this planetary scale computation acquires or like the, the planning powers or at least the right to deliver pro a project for mitigation, restoration, etc., that we cannot understand, how will we trust it? What what aspect of it do you would we not understand? Do you do you sort of think um, the question of understanding is also kind of an interest is an is is a complicated one um, in that it, you know there's forms of deep learning where it works and we don't know why it works. Um, you know, at, at the same time, if you were to ask a person how it is that you think. You know, like where, how do your memories work and how do your thought works and where, you know, like we, we don't entirely understand how we work. But I, I think to you know, more important sense that, you know, many of the, it's not about the need to produce fantastic magic new technologies that are beyond the, beyond the horizon of our, of our comprehension in order for them to somehow deus ex machina appear and solve everything on their own. This is this is not at all what I, I would, what I have in mind, and I'm deeply suspicious of those who sort of speak in those terms. What I'm speaking of is really, in many respects, a reorientation and remobilization of many of the existing technologies, existing regimes, existing processes for purposes that are, for the very long term, uh, will be will prove to be more vi will will prove to be more uh, more viable, um, and I think that includes questions of what do we build computation out of? Can it continue to be built on the the extraction of particular metals from Central Africa? What do we power it with? Can it continue to be powered by fossil fuels, or does it need to be powered by clean energy like nuclear or 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 solar or wind? You know all these kinds of things. These are these are not just uh, you know th these are, these are not just short term sort of issues. They want they have to do with the question, the more fundamental question of going back to that big nature video at the beginning of as as the planet has produced one form of matter, which is human brains that are capable of tremendous feats of sapience that have in turn produced another form of matter, which is this inorganic planetary crust. That is planetary scale computation. Knowing that, you know, the rare Earth hypothesis is true, and that life is incredibly rare, that civilizations are incredibly rare, the long-term vocation of this technology has to be one for the has to be one that is geared towards um, the, the vibrance, the vibrancy, and viability, and long-term continuance um, of, of, of life on Earth, and probably life off of Earth as well. And so again, it's not about a magic technology that's going to save everything that we don't understand. Ultimately, I have a lot of faith in what 
uh, a general sapience is capable of doing. Well, on that note, and is that four and, minutes? Did I make it? Oh yes, you did. <laughs> we okay, have to good. give way to our special guests, and I think we're gonna Wonderful. start with Mija, who is in Amsterdam. Hi, Mija. Hey, hi, Martin. Hi, <laughs> Benjamin. Hi, how are you? Perfect. Busy days, but anyway, <laughs> it's a really oh. nice conversation. And really yes. opened uh, a lot of questions and a lot of entry points. However, I have one angle to open and to mm -hmm. maybe challenge you a bit, especially from the angle of comparative planetology. This mm -hmm. idea of singular, unified idea of a planet that kind of also emerged through the planetary computation, like quite early described by Paul Edwards, since it was, I mean, it is a product of environmental scientists. I mean, on one side, researching, uh, I mean, first starting with the weather and then going into climate and then trying to understand the environment as a, I mean, especially a planetary environment as a unified system. So something that relates to everything. So we have the, the earth system theory where oceans impact mm. uh, atmosphere, atmosphere, and uh, let's say biosphere, they all relate somehow to each other. And that's a kind of idea that we should and all agree on one idea of a planet. And then this planetary computer is part of this planetary imaginary. So this one system, one idea. However, <clears throat> what we are observing and maybe this is the topic that is also partially opened by the last biennial in Taipei, where Bruno Latour was co-curating, coming up with the title, Me and You Don't Live on the Same Planet. Identifying that different people have totally different ideas of the planet. And these ideas are so different that are so confronting to each other that literally it's not about different ideas of a planet, but literally they have ideas that live on a different planets. Some live on the mm -hmm. flat planets and they are so sure, like we are sure that the planet is round. So in this challenge, or let's say, it's not just about different human ideas. Also, let's say plants, trees, bacteria, they also had their own worldviews. They also had their own cosmologies about the environment and the planet that they live on. Mm. And then when yep. we also leave our planet and we go to the moon or Mars, where we assume there are some leftovers of some other <laughs> lives as well, maybe there was other ideas of those planets. So coming back yeah. to the question, is there a chance for a mutual ground or a middle ground between these different perspectives, between these different challenging worldviews, uh, where the planetary computation doesn't take the environment only as an object of observation, but also as a co-designer of the of this machine. So where bacteria mm -hmm. and trees can also contribute and use this machine for their own agency. Can yes. this planetary okay. machine also be used for the citizens? So that's the main question here. Yeah, great. So, okay, great. Thank you for the question because it, it gives me a, a, tr a, a really 
it's an excellent question. Gives me a very precise opportunity to sort of clarify some of the thoughts and maybe make some differentiations between our project and, and Latour's, for example. Um, let me ask you though, do, do, I mean, do you think that the people who believe in a flat earth live on a flat earth? Do you think they live on a, a round or they think that you, they live on a spherical earth for real? Like, are they literally on flat earths or are they literally actually on spherical earths and only think they're on flat earths? It's, I, it's, I, it's a simple question, but maybe one that goes to the heart of this. Um, so I don't know uh, because I'm not one of them. So it's hard for me to represent their own way of thinking. No, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, actually, I don't mean in yeah. a way of thinking. I mean, like outside. Yeah, I mean, but but because some people actually live in very narrow surroundings and context, so they don't move far. They're not mobile. Right. Uh, so I understand. They, they actually, but, but, they actually don't care. They don't care, <laughs> but they believe right. that. And also, but they believe that, right? But different beliefs, yeah, for sure. The way the way I would describe this is they actually live in different worlds, not so much different planets. I will be, I will go out on a limb and say even flat earthers actually live on spherical planets, whether they realize they live on spherical planets or not. They actually, for real, live on a spherical planet, but that they imagine, but that their world in the same in which like a plants have a world, bees have a world, that all forms of things that have some, you know, von Uchschkohl's kind of force, like th that the world in which they live in is one in which their, their, their sort of, uh, their concept of their sense of location is one in which they're, they imagine themselves to live on a flat world, but that they don't. That is, I, and so I, I, I'm enough of a kind of naive scientific realist uh, to hold that heliocentrism is a better model, is a more accurate model of the solar system than geocentrism is. That Darwinian evolution is a more accurate model of, of how humans evolved, how humans got here than creationism. That the 4.6 billion year date for the age of the planet is more accurate than the 10,000 year date that that most of Europe, you know, that Christendom thought it was sort of like that. That there, that part of what Copernican traumas are is our moments, our, our priceless, priceless moments in which are, in which the, are, the, the form, the capacities of perception and self-conception and modeling of our, of, of our worlds, that we produce some kind of a capacity for technical alienation usually, like microscopes or telescopes, which when used properly allow us to, something is disclosed something is revealed about an underlying reality that has always been there. And so this is where it's like, when Paul, Paul Edwards' story about the history of the planetarity from, from uh, Earth science, uh, or the, 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 uh, the discourse of planetary that emerges from space programs, I'm thinking about you know, Heidegger freaking out, looking at a picture of the Earth from outer space. The the planet, these were moments where a, a, a planetarity is disclosed. It was revealed more than it is, more than it is something that is discursively composed by certain kinds of things. And this is where I, I, I find in, in many respects, I mean, Latour will, he'll tell you, he will, you know, keep adamantly tell you that he's not a social constructivist, but at the end of the day, 
at the end of the day, saying that that in respects that the flat earthers literally live on another planet, that the that the spherical earthers live live on another planet. I find the fact that he's that he's so willing to let go of the idea that there actually is and that there actually is a planet from which from which humans have emerged from which human capacity for sentience and sapience has emerged that uh, that it it is it is part of which that all of the form that 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 let go of the idea that planets make worlds so that he can hold on to the idea that worlds make planets i find totally disingenuous totally uh politically reprehensible uh, and intellectually fraudulent. But maybe just last challenge. Uh, is the- Sure. You can see me more questions than you have. <laughs> just a short one. So- But other than that, I like him. Computed, <laughs> is the computed earth, is the computed earth. So the one that is a product of the computation. Yeah. I mean, today it's usually sure, described sure, sure, as a- as a digital twin, is that really? Yeah. So, so uh, right. So, so, so let me. So, so part of the idea that so I think one of the the sort of the ideological mistakes of the of the early computing era as well was somehow the idea that computation is virtual, and 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 as opposed and that and that analog processors, biological processors are physical, and that it's a dynamic between the physical and the virtual. Computation is a physical process. Computation is a physical process. It's a bending and folding of metals and minerals, running electricity through it, and so forth and so on. And so the question of the fact that we would ask the question of how that can can planetary computation act back upon the Earth in a way in which the Earth is kind of is based on an idea that somehow it's not part of the Earth to begin with. Planetary scale computation is one of the things that the Earth does. Now, the fact that it makes sense and model and, and, and that is, first of all, makes use of all of the kinds of matter and energy of the earth for it to function is one thing. But, but I think to the heart of your question, which I think is, is, is an is a excellent one, is are there other ways in which lots of different forms of life can not only be the kind of object of observation of this apparatus, but actually can be enrolled in this apparatus in ways that are more generative. And I, this is exactly the right question to ask. One of the areas that I'm really interested in for this particular purpose is, is the role of, of deep learning in synthetic biology, uh, where you see labs to where you've got, you've got huge arrays of, of, of different kinds of uh, of experiments that are, that are being done, where you've got whether it's you've got different kinds of uh, the material of these experiments are are cells or sort of something smaller than this at a molecular level, but that you've set up a kind of computational apparatus that is doing a kind of possibility testing of different kinds of of developmental forms upon upon this matter. What you've set up in a way is certain kind of matter producing another kind of matter. And then describing the matter that is kind of produced, and like we've kind of like set the dominoes going, but really what you've got is like matter making matter, in a way in which that may result in some you know drug therapies, but other kinds of other kinds of things as well. But you know, thinking about think about ways in which other kinds of fundamental planetary processes of photosynthesis, of cellular regeneration, of other kinds of things that can actually be somehow kind of micro-prostheticized by, by uh, some kind of informational te information technology is, 
it, to me, it, a way of thinking about what some information technology might really be for, might really be useful for. And so I, I love this. I love this line of thinking. I love the way in which it develops as a sort of as a way of possibilities of thinking about computation as a landscape scale phenomenon rather than a kind of you know a machine rather than a kind of a vir machine that makes vir virtual images that it's an imminent physical process that is interrelated with biological and chemical processes at its core that is that's that's i think that's the direction we want to be thinking through for sure so i certainly hope so and i love it as an orientation for us yeah so we now have the next question from our next guest Milos, who is i think in ljubljana hi Milos. Hi. Hi. That's correct. Hi. Thanks so much for this talk. Uh, I think it was fascinating, especially in a sense that I'm an architect as well. So I'm thinking a lot about... I have to say, uh, I'm, not an, I'm not an architect. I just I just pretend to be one at, when I teach at architecture schools, I'm, but I don't design anything. We all do, I think. Uh, <laughs> it's... Um, <laughs> It, it definitely addresses a construct or, or rather a, um, a certain problem that is so present in architecture, perhaps even more than in other disciplines right now. And that is certain paralysis in how to act and especially how to plan, how to plan hmm. and how to construct and to organize any sort of totality, let alone the, for instance, planetary totality. And I always think that there is certain connection between this paralysis in the world that's overwhelmed with data and the contrast to it, for instance, with white patches on maps of the 15th and 16th century, which was not only the amount of data was way smaller, but the knowledge of the limitation was very much present and almost tangible. And yet the mm -hmm. ability to plan and control was something completely different to our contemporary paralysis. And I suppose I'm trying to ask you whether you think that the, the ability to control infrastructure rather to use it against the grain uh, for which it was constructed, which is a lot of what we were, we were um, hearing today, is somehow linked to mm -hmm. establishing a new common sense um, in line with how neoliberalism or surveillance capitalism built the common sense that even the forces that are trying to oppose it have to deal with as the common sense. I will yeah. illustrate what I mean here. For instance, I very much like that you, you talked about you know, questioning some of the basic assumptions. And we're talking about nationalization of the data networks, for instance, or the, the data infrastructure. And we do seem to focus a lot about global tax, the notion of nationalization and the nation control, um, instead of perhaps mm -hmm. thinking of how to redefine the notion of ownership in general as to make it inoperative or rather operative in another way. So instead of playing on the opponent's field, so to speak, is it possible mm -hmm. to address the very notion that uh, that defines the rules of the game? I mean, and other examples, which I very much like to talk about borders, in which borders perhaps like to um, computation that you stressed is always also, it's not an abstract uh, process. Uh, borders are likewise never just a line. No? They are a line as an abstraction, but in space, they always exist, they mm -hmm. always have depth, um, they always have space, 
And that's where rules, na national rules at the very least, don't apply. So I'm, I'm just trying to get to the point, um, is it possible to expand these uncovered territories and make them into a new mainstream in a way, to make them inoperative? Hmm. A number of really interesting questions sort of linked together into one question. So I'm, I'll try to answer, uh, try to sort of also tie my, my responses together as much as I, as, as much as I can. I think that there is a need for a kind of a, a different common sense in, in relationship to this. And I think this is part of what we're talking about, what we're, we're talking about here in terms of the, this question of what planetary scale computation is for. To the point at the beginning about totality, uh, which you speak to, is that I, I think one of the maybe also again shifting some of the common sense here is to a certain extent, there's a, there's a presumption that totality becomes the, the plan is predicated on totality, and the totality is predicated on omniscience or completion of the map, or uh, like the more higher resolution the representation, the greater the capacity for planning might be. And I, I and I actually don't think that's really necessarily the case, right? There's ways in which totalities can be that we can imagine and construct totalities and understand them in ways that are. Either whether those are natural totalities, like you know, understanding you know the the distribution of carbon dioxide, or whether they're artificial totalities, like metric system or time zones or something like this, where they are these are they are systems that have been that have been that are artificially constructed first to measure the Earth in some way, to zone the Earth in different kinds of kinds of constructions, but because they, because they're in a way enforced as artificial descriptions, they have a generative capacity to actually cause things to happen in the image of the, the parameters of measurement. That is, a metric, the metric system doesn't just measure things in the world that happen to be 10 centimeters. It causes things to be certain lengths and widths and heights so that they become interoperable in the future, that the artificiality of these subsectionings are generative. And borders are obviously one of those as well, uh, in certain respects, like to some extent that they are drawn based on where, you know, different linguistic communities happen to be in the 17th century. In some cases, they are in fact generative of the distributions of populations in different, in different, in different kinds of ways. And so part of the question here has, to, again, has to do with is thinking about totalities, not entirely in terms of omniscience, uh, that if we can that if we can know every single thing that there is to know, then we'll know what to do. But rather thinking about totalities in terms of what are the ways in which we can construct a kind of a certain kind of artificial anthropogenic responses that we anticipate and and will will mobilize on behalf of their generative functions, uh, even if they even if in some ways that they. They're beginning as representational or, descript or, or descriptive functions. And, and one way to maybe think about that is, again, in terms of climate science. That is, climate science today is, you know, is an extraordinarily accomplished description of the way Earth's, you know, Earth systems operate. And you know, to the previous speaker, for sure, 
our simulations of our computational simulations of those processes are are many 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 orders of magnitude much simpler and primitive than those actual processes in in the world that doesn't mean however like our climate models may be complex but they're they're they are rudimentary compared to the complexity of an actual climate that doesn't mean that they are somehow inadequate to having agency that just because our climate models are millions of times simpler than the climate itself doesn't mean that we shouldn't act on their behalf. That doesn't mean that they don't have implications for an anthropogenic response to anthropogenic climate change. One of the things that I think maybe we find ourselves at this point is that climate models have a capacity to represent the world. They do not yet have a capacity to recursively act back upon the world in ways that they should. That they don't have a they don't have a recursive and generative and, re, and generative function in the same way financial models do, for example, where financial models not only describe the market but they actually cause the market to bend in particular directions. We need we need our climate models not to be, you know, like a, a million times more high res, and therefore we'll know what to do. We need to be focusing really on like how do we make them recursive, how do we make them generative, so that this general distribution of sapience that they represent of how not just you know scientists know what's going on but how the planet understands itself and can act back upon itself and remake itself in some sort of ways through us the the uh, the willing primates uh, as their as their media or their sexual organs as the case may be are able to sort of structure upon that and so i guess then to the question of borders again it's my point earlier is I think it's too simple to simply say we're going to get rid of borders because I think what's going to happen then is it simply it simply displaces the interiorization, the inclusion exclusion functions that borders do. It simply displaces that to internal differentiation. So if you get rid of a, of a border at one scale, then those process of interiorization, exteriorization, inclusion, exclusion, then again just get sort of moved inside that territory and they become displaced in a way in which maybe some of the more fundamental issues are not are not necessarily resolved but one of the things i think we are already seeing is a kind of multiplication and overlapping of bordering systems where instead of just seeing this as here's the mercator projection of terrestrial geography and how can we redraw the lines we need to understand that one of the things that planetary scale computation is doing is not just redrawing the map, but it's producing new territories in its own image. It's not just redrawing the map, it's redrawing the territory and producing new territories. And so it may be, and I think it already is in many respects, that if you're standing at one place on the map, you are already both inside and outside of many different borders at the same time. Physical borders, national borders, platform borders, institutional borders, any number of kinds of ways, other kinds of things as well. And so in the long term, again, I, I think it probably has less to do with which kind of circles can we draw on the land so that we can put people inside them in different kinds of locations, but rather how is it that, that the distributed platforms that are able to pr provide information, to sense information across space and time in different kinds of artificial ways, are able to include and provide services, provide access, provide modes of inclusion that are not necessarily dependent upon enclosure within a particular state domain, I, I think is probably where a lot of this is going. At the same time, in terms of the role of the state going forward, I think it has less to do with 
states disappearing, but rather the way in which states themselves are evolving into cloud platforms. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of something like the Belt and Road Initiative that China is putting forward throughout Africa and Eurasia and into Europe, the development of this, of this transnational infrastructure that allows them to sense and model and act back upon the economies and societies that this infrastructure moves through is not an attempt to include Kazakhstan into China or to include Tanzania into China, but it's able to extend their infrastructural capacity to sense model and act back upon those societies and infrastructures through this th through this kind of way. And so it, it, these, I think, in many cases are the kinds of the kinds of processes, the kinds of the, the kinds of trends or developments where our our critical attention must hold. I, I, I'm not necessarily arguing entirely on their behalf, but to your point, I, I want to underscore them and point to them to demonstrate, as as you suggest, some of the ways in which simply sort of reinscribing the borders of Europe, for example, and saying you know that we are going to somehow contain these planetary flows inside the moat of Europe in some way, and that that inside the moat will be able to control what goes on here in a certain kind of way, you know, is a bit like, I think it's a bit like King Canute standing in front of the waves and commanding them to stop. I think these forces just operate at a scale that's larger than that. And so I think that our responses should be ones that are thinking at the scale of the phenomena itself. Not that governance should be suspended, to the contrary, governance should be expanded to the scale of the planetary phenomenon that we are embedded in. You know, the recent work is a call for a planetary governance, not a withdrawal of planetary governance. So anyway, thank you for the excellent questions. Thanks for a great answer. Thanks. Well, I really like this um, this idea about borders expanding, not moving, but, but expanding. It, it reminds me of, of an essay that was published uh, some years ago. Maybe you remember it called Welcome to Airspace where it talked precisely mm. about like, the fiction of borders and how these new spaces that, that the planetarity has created are mostly defined by aesthetics right now. But now we have Marco. In, in some cases, sometimes they're defined by, sometimes they're defined by men with guns. But I, I understand, but I you understand your point for sure. Yeah, yeah. But that's normally protecting something that has a very particular aesthetics, even if it's just, you know, oh. palm trees and like, you know, clean swimming pools and, and mineral water and, and stuff like that. Uh, okay. So, Marco, uh, so you, you've, just, you've just described La Jolla. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, both. Hi, Benjamin. Nice Hi, to Mark, see you again. You? Um, nice to see you, my I'm, friend. I'm okay. <laughs> so, to, to get... Uh, local about it. While translating the terraforming into Slovenian, actually, a Slovenian government became what you would call an idiotic ethno-nationalist government with some uh, fine finesses of extra-right women. But my problem was, or my, my dilemma was connecting that to your anti-culture stance from the terraforming. Because the, of course, the knee-jerk reaction to such a government is a cultural one, right? It's it's an instant culture war. But culture war, of course, is exactly part of the problem, and mm -hmm. also the knee-jerk reaction from the left is a cultural one, and it's also technophobic. So very much mm -hmm. against technology, very much against science, or at least not not so very much against science. But it has like this, you know, like reaction against government is also like a reaction against doing schools via Zoom, you know, things like that. <laughs> so in that regard, I was thinking about 
relationship between prosaic and poetic because we are like a nation of mm. poets like our heroes mm. are poets not so much scientists or technocrats <laughs> and the thing is that for sure if one reads your work one gets an impression one needs more manuals than poetry works but at the same time to get back to kafka he's exactly the figure that sort of mediates between the poetic and prosaic and i would also say mm. that your role within that or your function is actually still about mediating between culture and technology so that mm. would be my question hmm. wow interesting interesting um so I should probably say that you know my my I, I wouldn't characterize my position as anti-culture. I, I would care any more than I would cons really cons characterize my position as pro-technology. That's like um, contrarian, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I got what the particular point I was making in the book, just to maybe clarify for the listeners, was that there is, I think, in that more kind of the kind of romantic left anti-technology kind of knee-jerk response that I think you're speaking to, a kind of flamboyant valorization of culture as the antidote to the ills of technology, based upon it in a way, a very deeply seated dichotomization between the two, that technical reason and aesthetic reason are at odds with each other, and that they are fundamentally distinct, that they represent not only different approaches, but antagonistic approaches. And that there's a kind of fundamental war in the astral realm between the dark side of the force and the light side of the force and, and so on. And, and in the West, this goes back to at least to the Romantic era and the kind of, I think in many ways, disoriented response to you know the disclosures of electricity and surgery and you know industrialization and so forth. And, and the production of an idea of a poetic disposition, an artistic response, a kind of transcendental autonomy from the technical and the instrumental and the machinic, and certainly, absolutely, a kind of, in many ways, hysterical response to the implications of Darwin that finds its apotheosis in, in Nietzsche, who you know, took the idea of man as animal in a way that says more about his concept of what animals are than anything else. And then, of course, in Heidegger, for whom the penultimate declaration of this, in many ways, as you and I have discussed, a project that is, in many respects, a kind of way of attempting to tell the history of being without ever mentioning Darwin, without with a history of trying to recapture and refortify and extend a pre-Darwinian understanding of what it means to be human as long as possible. And so what I mean by this is that this distinction, the dichotomization and the valorization of the cultural and the aesthetic and the artistic over instrumental reason is less the position by which the logic of technology in the West can be resisted and overcome than it is fundamentally the basis of the logic of the philosophy of technology in the West going back hundreds of years. The logic of the philosophy of Western philosophy of technology is this distinction and dichotomization and the valorization of one in relationship to the other. Now, one of the ways in which I sort of think of this is, again, not that it's a, an attempt to try to demystify or disenchant or denigrate the poetic or the artistic or the aesthetic. I think these, these themselves are also priceless forms of, are of sapient abstraction that appear 
you know, 60,000 years ago with the rest of the cognitive revolution that, that manifested in the forms of, of figural abstraction and externalization of cognition in the forms of images and models of representation. Like this is so fundamental to this project of general sapiens to which I, to which I describe that it's impossible to separate them at all. At the same time, you know, when I'm at my primary professorship is at UC San Diego, which is University of California, San Diego, which is a, a kind of a science and technology university that focuses on neuroscience and biotechnology and computational biology and so forth, nanoengineering. In many cases, when I do lab visits and I go to see what someone in the bioengineering department is working on when they're building tiny little machines for the filtering of, of white blood cells that go inside the inside the veins and, and are doing something like inter... I look at the work that goes on in the lab and I think this by far is the best art on campus. That what we're doing over in the art department is not nearly as good as art as what's going on in the nanoengineering department or in the bioengineering department. So if they don't think of it that way, you know, try to explain this to them why this is actually so wonderful on this sort of way. And they kind of, they sort of smile and, and say, thank you, but they don't really understand why this would be the case. And so I guess in a certain way, if, if you see my role as a kind of mediator between these two, it's probably one in which it would be the quixotic attempt to de-Heideggerize the philosophy of technology, which might be, you know, probably beyond beyond my capacity and all the things that that would imply. But one of the things that it would imply is an understanding and appreciation of the poetic, aesthetic, allegorical complexity and beauty of technical and machinic reason and composition in and of itself. And to understand those processes themselves as not as something that is antithetical to the poetic, but as a manifestation of the poetic. And going back to the Marta's analogy at the beginning of humans as the sexual organs of machine, all the sort of forms of dynamics of desire that constitute the basis of cultural energy are also manifest in there as well. You know, aesthetic reason is a form of pattern recognition. It's a form of cross-domain heuristic communication. It's all kinds of things. It's incredibly complex. And I would never want to do away with it and never want to denigrate it, but I would also never want to not be able to see it in what I take to be its most amazing manifestations in the contemporary world, which in many cases are ones that are deeply technological in their origins and deeply instrumental in their function. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the dichotomy you were talking about is is the same one that Charles Mann describes in his, I think, last or second to last book called Prophets and Visionaries, no? Like what's prophets. that book? Is that the one about, uh, what's the, t I don't yeah. know this book. What's the topic? Oh, it's called Prophets and Visionaries, I think. And it talks about precisely this dichotomy between the scientists or in general, the thinkers that see the world as something that can be fixed or improved through technology and through human means mm. and those that believe that it should be left alone to regain its natural, you know, state of perfection, I guess, to put mm. to extreme. Okay. I would say that most of the scientists that I know wouldn't necessarily agree with that position. Some of the engineers that I know would see the world that's that way, but I, you know, scientists, not necessarily. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, you know, there's C.P. Snow in the two cultures. What I was really speaking up to was not so much the dichotomization of this, was really more specifically to 
the dynamics of this dichotomization in the Western philosophy of technology and why, in many respects, the philosophy of technology that the planetary philosophy of technology that we really need to be composing for the next hundred years to decolonize that philosophy, to de-Westernize that philosophy means to allow for this Heideggerian commitment to slide away. Yeah, I wish I could keep talking about this, but okay. we have Nature uh, waiting to read some of the questions from the audience. So hi, Nature, how are you doing? Hi, Marta, I'm doing great. You? Hello. Hello, Perfect. Hello Benjamin. Yeah. Thank you, Marta. Thank you, Benjamin, for this eye-opening discussion. And a big thanks to our online audience posing so many wonderful questions in the chat. We have selected three questions today. The first one being by Mikal. Um, pretty sure I'm not pronouncing this correctly. They ask, Benjamin, how do you see a relation between reorientation of planetary scale computation and existing market forces? As I see it, they add a lot of means of computation are in private sector, which could not be happy about the individualization of data or reorientation of computation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so it's an excellent question. I'll try to be specific about how I might try to answer that. Not all of planetary scale computation is privately owned. A lot of it is, is owned and controlled by states. A lot of it is, you know, something organized by other kinds of non-governmental organizations. And I, I think in a certain extent, you know, again, sort of reshifting our focus a little bit of thinking about the Asian context, not as an anomaly of the North American European context, but one that in fact might be more central and primary. The question about how can we ensure that there is public and state control of the infrastructure is a question that seems to have been answered to a more or less degree. No, very few of my friends in China who study the internet say what we need is more public state control of the internet. My point then is that one of the ways in which we should probably be thinking about the geoeconomics of planetary scale computation going forward is probably one in which the forms of ownership and the forms of control and the forms of capitalization of these investments and these purposes and the functions of this are probably ones that will not be entirely recognizable to kind of mid 20th century Keynesian distinctions between public ownership and private ownership in the same way in which it's very difficult to decide exactly whether contemporary China is a communist society or a capitalist society. It's clearly both. And it's clearly something something other than what those were at the beginning. But I think the gist of the, of the person's question is, isn't the, isn't the logic of market control of these predicated on profit and profit extraction and won't, and, and to a greater degree, won't profit extraction necessarily lead it towards short-term and pathological applications of the of pathological functions of these platforms. And uh, it, it, it very well may be in many in, in many in many cases. Um, at, at the same time, it's clear that that uh, that that state control and state ownership of of these infrastructures uh, is not not necessarily provide for the inversion of all of the pathologies of the of the market forces either. Many of the things that we might observe in in the Chinese context as most troubling about the Chinese model of the of the internet are not things that are being necessarily driven by um, the short-term quarterly profit quarterly profit demands for Tencent or Ali. They're driven by demands of the state. 
And so once again, it's like the versions of this that we need to be able to sort of look towards are ones in which we're very clear-eyed about the limitations, investment capital-driven platforms. We're clear about the limitations of centralized state-driven platforms. But we're also clear about the limitations of sort of anarchic, decentralized, distributed networks that might, in many cases, be much more nimble at the edges, but also have less of a capacity for long-term planning because they have less of a capacity for the recursive verticality that I'm calling for and in relationship to the climate science. If they, do, if, they, if they are proved capable of this, then this is, this is wonderful. And so that's why in many cases, such intelligent people are looking at models of ownership along those lines of trying to think about ways that are neither uh, state-led or corporate-led, but might be ones that are uh, as generally distributed as, as, for example, you know, we think about the scientific, the global scientific community, and the way in which climate science has been constructed in a way in which is largely decentralized, um, on the one hand, but also uh, driven by centralized state uh, investment and entrepreneurial investment in the forms of grants, in the forms of research, in the forms of other kinds of things, and so something along these lines is maybe where we want to sort of to look. Where, if you see what I'm saying. The kind of distribution of information within the scientific community is, is largely flat and decentralized. But the fact that this research has been able to be conducted in the first place is the result of massive, massive central central investment from, from state scientific institutes. And so some we need to think about some kind of, of logic and we need to find some other kinds of models uh, that may perhaps along these lines. Thank you for this elaborate answer. Our second question. I'm sorry if it's too elaborate. Maybe I, I, I could have said it simpler, more simply. So. Oh, it's great. Our second question comes from Peter. They ask, how does the smart city concept resonate with or against the planetary computation perspective? If at all, how does the urban-rural divide come into play here? Mm -hmm. So the city is an amazing technology, isn't it? One of the really amazing things about cities is, is their durability. Cities last longer than the regimes that build them. And the cities that we're in now will last longer than the regimes that we live under at, the, at this moment. Cities as forms of collective prosthetic technology persist over generations in ways that political regimes do not. Cities have long been a way in which sort of past decisions about how it is that we might live together and occupy a particular place get encoded and built into the occupiable hardware of the site. In this way, cities decide and enforce these decisions long-term. And they can do so in ways that are sort of prosaic, like I turn on the faucet and water comes out. They don't have to have a meeting of the local water authority to decide whether I should have water. It's just, it's, it's built in. It already happens. Or like, are we living near the river, far away from the river? Like all these, these sort of ways in which we have long-term intergenerational decisions about the coextensive technology of place get built into cities. And so, you know, cities are, you know, again, you know, the, the, a wonderful, wonderful model for the sort of collective, collective technology. And then it would stand to reason that in this regard, that to the extent to which planetary, and, and, and that is that cities are already very, very smart. It's not as though that once we would introduce computation into the hardware of cities, that therefore cities will become intelligent or thereby cities will be made smart. Cities are already much smarter than many other kinds of things, many other sorts of things. Well, And yet, if we can introduce 
forms of, of ways in which different moments and interfaces and apertures and surfaces and boundaries within the city are able to sense what's happening in their proximity and are able to model this in aggregate and are able to recursively act back upon the implications of those models, that the ability for us to self-organize through cities in ways that would otherwise be prohibitively difficult for political or economic reasons seems totally plausible. The problem that I have, and that would sort of suggest that there's something to the smart city idea. However, the problem that I really have with the smart city sort of idea is, is not that it's too grandiose or too you know unrealistically utopian, but in fact that it's totally unimaginative at its core and totally lacking in any kind of aspirational vision of what a city can be. In most cases, there are simply ways in which a, a kind of the most myopic and rudimentary understanding of how a city would work reduced to functions of shopping and parking and turnstiles and so forth. And then thinking about ways in which this extremely reductive and reduced and stultifyingly boring concept of a city could be computationally accelerated. So I would make us, in my mind, I think of the role of computation in the augmentation of the existing intelligence of cities and the conventional smart city discourse, which is a kind of, just a kind of rote reinscription of an increasingly reductive and dull notion of, of occupation as two totally different kinds of directions and projects, two different directions for what how computation can be embedded in, embedded into place, and so and so I, I would see it in, in, in this kind of way. At the same time, you know, one finds interesting ideas in strange places. I happened to visit the World AI Expo in Shanghai a couple of years ago, and which took over the site of the World's Fair. The entire World's Fair site was devoted to different kinds of AI platforms and products and schemes, and most of them were focused on cities. And I would say that 90% of them were not frightening. They were, they were frightening only in the sense that they were stultifyingly dull. But there's 10% of them that were in some weird upside down way quite ingenious. And I think my attention in a certain way is to, is to try to find something interesting in these kind of unlikely and perverse spaces and to, and to think about ways in which they could be, they might suggest clues for what comes next uh, despite themselves. Thank you. Now for our third and last question, Iska or Jiska asks, in your view, will there still be politi political leaders in planetary politics? How do we think politics in a planetary approach? Mm. Thanks. Um, yes, I think so. Uh, I would make try to make a distinct, there, there has been since Foucault at least, a distinction between you know, the political and governance. And and to a certain extent, you know, political, you know, we think of Schmidt and Chantal Mouffe and these kinds of more a kind of metaphysical distinction between friend and enemy that's antagonistic, that is kind of that is metaphysical and ontological and combative. Whereas governance is the kind of mundane decision making, the less personalized ways in which decision gets embedded into processes and protocols and interfaces and infrastructures such that the political doesn't have to happen. And my example of, of, of the water tap is sort of my go-to example for this, that 
there is, in a kind of fundamental sense, a kind of politics of water distribution for sure. And yet, most of us don't experience this, and we're very glad that we don't experience this, that we're glad that we don't have to have some kind of antagonistic debate about whether or not, you know, where the water should go this morning. We're glad that governance has been built into the infrastructure in such a way that it sort of just works. And I don't see this as a depoliticization. I see it in a way as the realization of a successful politicization in such a way that we can move on to other things. So this is a bit of his way of saying is that I, I do think that the political will continue at a planetary scale. If we think of the political as a kind of clash of ideas, a kind of clash of positions, social positions in relationship to different kinds of productive forces, you know, I, I, we're nowhere near the end of history in that kind of regard. But at the same time, I also think that in many ways, there is also a perhaps equally interesting discussion about planetary governance which is not necessarily the same thing as planetary politics that may have to do with other kinds of embedded infrastructural dynamics, such as, such as carbon taxes, such as carbon capture, such as different kinds of energy infrastructures, such as, a reorgan such as the life as it exists after a reorganization of borders and a reconceptualization of citizenship and so forth and so on. Well, all these things might be experienced as dynamics of governance more than they are experienced as dynamics of politics per se, especially because politics as such with a capital P is so invested in symbolic contestation, in a contestation and clash of symbols and, and what, what Marco called the kind of cultural narratives, the kind of cultural war, in which the war over the semiotic representation of the real becomes more important than the real itself. And I, I think to the extent that this happens, in any case, we find ourselves in a place in which an equitable and viable governance becomes less likely. And at last point, I, I think that, you know, since the you know, last generation or so, I think since the beginning of that neoliberal era, where in the West, governance in general has been denigrated as something sort of obscene and profane, the extent to which technocracy, technocrat is a slur, whereas the political with a capital P is, is amplified and elevated as a kind of, a kind of profound vocation over the nature of the real. In Asia, over the last same period, beginning in 78, when Deng comes, comes back and assumes power in China, there may have been the inverse of this, where governance and the competency of governance became a priority, whereas the political, as in ideological contestation over the nature of these things, was sidelined for sure, and not necessarily in, in good ways. But I do think that there's a role for politics going forward. I am interested in kinds of transnational planetary political parties transnational planetary platforms, agendas, thinking about the Green New Deals and all these, you know, one of the interesting things about the Green New Deal, despite all of its kind of, its obvious limitations, is the shift in the logic of governance from the mediation of general will and general voice to the purpose of government is the management of ecosystems and the assurance of their long-term viability. And the fact that they are have the different kinds of transnational imaginaries suggests in one way or another. So Yes to planetary politics, but don't forget planetary governance. All right. Well, as you can see, we are all intensely interested in how this architecture will be governed. And maybe from your last intervention, I almost presume that 
maybe this burst of ultra-national politics is a manifestation of the end of nationalism and national politics. Or maybe. That would yeah, be interesting. Yeah, yeah, things burn brightest just as they're about to disappear. Exactly, like a swan song, like in Pompeii. And so I think this is a wrap. <laughs> so thank you. Oh. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marta. Thank, thank you so much. Your brain is fantastic. I hope we can have it <laughs> more often <laughs> in this Axioma series. And thank you, everyone else, for uh, listen and watch and ask. And I'll see you next month. Bye. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, also from my side. Next week, we are back with Marta Perano and Holly Jim Buck, the author of the book After Geoengineering, Climate Tragedy, Repair and Restoration, and our special guests. Reprogramming is a podcast series produced by yours truly, Yanis Vakinyansha and Marcelo Kretic for the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts discursive program, Tactics and Practice. All episodes were edited and mixed by Gasper Torkar, who is also the author of the amazing original sound and music. The whole thing was coordinated by Sonia Gardina and realized in the framework of Con's platform for contemporary investigative art. For more information on the context, participants and partners involved, see the link in the description. You are for the more welcome to visit axioma.org where you'll find a wealth of free content, including the book version of the reprogramming talks. And if you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon or by making a donation, but no pressure, of course. That's all for this episode. Greetings from Ljubljana and Nasvidenia.